Romans chapter 8, and read along with me, if you would, starting in verse 9, uh, where we're jumping into the middle of Paul's argument, which I will uh, start addressing in a minute here. So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That is the word of the Lord. Uh, You may be seated. Uh, So today from Romans 8, and specifically from the text that we just read together, Uh, we're going to look at what is a common struggle uh, in the church, in Christianity, and that is this, am I truly a believer? That question comes up with some regularity among us. Um, And it might go something like this, I know and affirm that you cannot have Jesus as Savior without having Him as Lord. And I know that even sinful desire is sin, and that on the last day, many who call Jesus Lord, Lord, He will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. So as I struggle with sin, how can I know if I am really God's child? So today we'll look uh, at how Paul in Romans 8 answers questions like these that tend to come up early and often in the Christian life. Serious questions about sin, suffering, and assurance of salvation. Uh, So let's uh, open with prayer and ask the Lord to help us as we consider these things from Romans 8. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for your goodness and grace to allow us to gather together here. Uh, Lord, we pray for your help as we seek to address uh, what is a difficult question, a difficult set of questions. And Lord, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word, for the wisdom of your word, what you have revealed to us, and Lord, for how uh, the glorious chapter 8 of Romans uh, addresses these things and gives us an assurance that uh, is biblical and sound and ministers the hope of our eternal salvation and our eternal inheritance in Christ to our hearts. I pray, Father, that in this time you would do that, that you would um, deal with sin in us, Lord, that you would assure us of the sufficiency and the greatness and the mercy of your salvation, and that you would glorify yourself in all of it. We ask in your Son's name. Amen. Um, I didn't mention, by the way, uh, but you might have inferred, uh, this is a break from uh, Joe Oliver's series, uh, He's Not Feeling Well, this weekend. So I'm stepping in to do uh, one 
uh, Sunday school lesson in his place. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, we're jumping in here in Romans 8 into the middle of Paul's argument uh, in the book of Romans, and uh, something that we'll often fall into the trap of uh, is taking a text out of its context. So, in an effort to not do that here, uh, the first point, uh, and you see this in your handouts, is a brief overview of Romans 1 to 8. Uh, and then you see there the other three main points which come uh, from chapter 8, the text that we're going to look at specifically. How can I know I belong to God, the inheritance for God's child, and then number four, what does it mean to suffer with him? So first, a brief overview of Romans 1 to 8. And uh, the first section uh, of Paul's argument uh, starts in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, and that is the heart of the gospel, justification by faith. Uh, and uh, verses 15 to 17, there in Romans 1, uh, Paul really gives his purpose statement, and that's helpful when trying to get your head around initially the argument of a book, the argument especially of one of Paul's letters, is to see what the purpose is for which he's writing. And we find that in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 1, which reads, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. <clears throat> for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, so number one there, uh, you see Paul was seeking to meet a need at the church in Rome. They needed to be unified, Jew and Gentile, in their understanding of gospel implications. Uh, the church in Rome was kind of at a crossroads in major, a major area, as you might uh, uh, understand already. In terms of the ancient world, uh, many people were in Rome and many people went from Rome to elsewhere. Uh, and so that includes, in the church at Rome, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul was concerned that they would see that the gospel puts them on equal footing. Number two, uh, we find there in those three verses that Paul would meet their need by preaching the gospel to them. Uh, the Jews basically would have one way of understanding how to deal with the righteousness of God, and that was through the law, through their Jewish heritage. The Gentiles would have another way, and this will come out as we get a little bit further into Romans. The Gentiles would have another way of basically becoming practical atheists. So Paul is presenting God's way of dealing with the righteousness of God, which, verse 17, is the righteousness of God as a gift to everyone who would believe. And that is the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith. So, Roman numeral 2 there, everyone is condemned under God's moral law, no one is good. This is the next part of, of Paul's argument here in Romans, uh, and we see that developing in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 and 19, where, where Paul talks about how God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness, uh, and that what is known about God is evident to all, uh, because God made it evident to them. Verse 32 uh, that, that they know, those who oppose God, know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things, sin, are worthy of death. 
and then verse 12 of chapter 2, basically coming to this conclusion that all have sinned and all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and that all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So again, his concern is that this understanding should be common among Jews and Gentiles, that there is no exception, that they all need God's solution to his righteousness. And then summing it up, that was a little bit early there, summing it up in chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So Paul's made this argument, and we're sort of fast-forwarding through it, but that, that there is no exception to everyone's need for God's righteousness to be dealt with, and Paul's purpose in writing Romans is to present God's solution to that, which is his own righteousness as a gift. So he proceeds in chapter 3 here to give the hope that he's writing with, which is the gospel, which is propitiation, and that explains how anyone could be saved it is the only way. And as many of you probably know, that word propitiation means wrath-bearing sacrifice. And Paul has already described how uh, the life lived by both Jew and Gentile is worthy of the wrath of God. Propitiation is that God's Son, Jesus, bore the wrath that is deserved by sinners, universally deserved by all uh, because of our sin against God. Verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3, and I've heard this referred to as the central city of the Christian faith. It really is the, uh, the, the grand uh, solution that Paul is presenting uh, here to the Romans. He writes, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So you, you see there, again, he's driving home this point of this is level ground for Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. So there you see the righteousness of God is not like Luther had conceived it prior to his conversion, uh, a standard that must live, be lived up to in this case. It's a gift to the one who receives it by faith. Uh, so that he can have the righteousness of God necessary for salvation. So a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So God made Jesus to be that wrath-bearing sacrifice in place of those who would receive it as a gift by faith in him. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So those whose sin has not been dealt with according to what they deserve can't say, well, it was because there was something good in me. God was patiently anticipating the cross and continues to, even, even for those of us, if there are those of us in this room who haven't repented, the only reason God hasn't brought the full weight of his wrath to bear against your sin is because uh, he is being patient because of the propitiation, his wrath-bearing sacrifice of his son. But that must be received by faith in him. Uh, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God was open to the accusation of being unjust because he did not bring the full weight of his wrath to bear 
against the sin that had been committed, but he was patient. So the fact that he put Jesus on the cross means that he could forgive sins for those who receive that sacrifice by faith. And so I would turn the question to you. I've mentioned a couple times that it's necessary to receive that by faith. Search your own heart and ask this question, have you received that by faith? Have you received Jesus' propitiation by faith? Do you see the reality of God's wrath? Romans 1 bears testimony to the fact that we all do, but we all need to have our eyes opened by this ministry of God's Word through the Apostle Paul to ourselves, that we have that thought removed that somehow we don't deserve God's wrath. So I would urge you, if you haven't seen that, see and believe what the Apostle Paul is telling us here, that we fully deserve God's wrath against our sin, but also see the refuge that is provided in Christ, that because God made him a wrath-bearing sacrifice, a propitiation, it is for us to turn in faith to him and to receive that as a gift. Now, in chapter 4, Paul anticipates kind of the first objection that you might hear from a Jewish audience, which is that somehow, in their conception, Old Testament law, or I'm sorry, is to address the possibility that Old Testament law is not compatible with justification by faith, but somehow provides another way. And so, Paul enters into an argument. He uses three examples. First, uh, Abraham, and then uh, Abraham's circumcision, and then the example of David to demonstrate that Old Testament law is in fact compatible with justification by faith. Old Testament saints were only ever justified by faith. It says in uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 4, quoting Genesis 15, 6, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then in, cha- in verse 10, uh, that it was not credited while he was uncircumcised, but while he, or I'm sorry, while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. So his circumcision in no way contributed. And that would be the error that a lot of the Jews, uh, including at Rome, would be falling into, uh, if they were falling into an error relative to the gospel, would be that somehow works could save. Works could offer the refuge that Paul is arguing only the propitiation, uh, wrath-bearing sacrifice of Christ could offer. And then David Uh, who said in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so that's that same language of crediting or taking into account. Uh, Instead of having had his sin taken into account, David, like Abraham and like every believer, has the righteousness of God as a gift taken into account. Uh, Starting with chapter 5, verse 1, we get into the section that contains our text for today, and that is uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 39, uh, summarized as the assurance of the gospel, the hope of salvation. So having flattened both the Jews and the Gentiles in terms of how they would hope to to escape God's wrath or to deal with the problem of his righteousness, uh, Paul has has given them both this incredible truth about justification by faith alone. Uh, now, you might imagine it could feel them a little bit, uh, un- leave them feeling a little bit uneasy. Um, the Gentiles had hardened their hearts against the truth about God, making it so that they had nothing to fear. Uh, basically saying, we'll be okay, we're just going to give ourselves over to sin, and there will be no consequences because there have been no consequences so far. Jews, on the other hand, had trusted in their lineage or in works of the law, and that was their refuge. So Paul is taking away what they'd always trusted in. 
Um, and we might sort of think about applying this to ourselves in terms of that struggle that I mentioned earlier, uh, the tendency to look at our works or our lack of works and to, to tremble because those things in which we're tempted to place hope uh, can't bear the weight of our hope. We struggle with assurance. So whether for the, the Gentiles or the Jews or for us, Paul wants to answer this question. How can we be secure in the truth of this gospel he's presenting of justification by faith alone? Now, the broad answer to that question Paul gives in chapter 5, and it is this, that salvation is secure because it is God who does it, and that's verse 1 of chapter 5. It is through our union with Christ, which we find there in verse 1 of chapter 5 and then in verses 11 through 21, where it talks about uh, like Adam is the head of humanity, Jesus is the head of all who believe in him. So it's that union with Christ that makes it certain and secure. And then you see in verse 5 of chapter 5, it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. There in um, uh, chapter 5, Paul sort of sums it up. The hope of this, the security of it, does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So it is God who does it. It is through our union with Christ, and it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Now, the next element of this assurance or starting to build the case for evidence of it uh, is pretty much the whole of chapter 6. And this starts to expand uh, Paul's argument to, to talk about how uh, this reality of a certain assurance, a certain salvation from chapter 5 is applied in reality. Uh, and chapter 6, really, if you could summarize it, uh, is talking about how the justified sinner will not live in a way contrary to the law. Paul opens by asking a rhetorical question, what then? You know, if this salvation that he's describing in chapter 5 is so certain and secure and assured because of the work of God, union with Christ, and the seal of the Spirit, then shall I continue to sin so that grace may abound? And the answer is, may it never be. And so this in chapter 6 deals with what really would have been a temptation more for the Gentiles than for the Jews to, to respond to this by saying, well, then I'm just going to live like I always have and give myself to sin. Instead of practical atheism, I'm just going to say, wow, God is abundantly uh, gracious and will provide this no matter what. And so Paul's answering uh, that potential uh, perversion or aberration. Now there's a second, and this would be uh, more the temptation of uh, the Jewish audience, the Jewish uh, people in the audience for Paul, and that would be uh, to live as if obedience to the law could save them. The justified sinner will not live as if obedience to the law could save him. Um, now, there's some controversy, I don't think there's really much here, about whether Paul is talking in Romans 7 as a, a believer or an unbeliever. Although I have a position on that, I don't think that's really the point of that text. Uh, the one who's, um, I want to be careful how I say this, the one who is experiencing a lack of victory consistently in fighting sin, like it might be taken that Paul is there, is living perhaps in unbelief, but is not necessarily an unbeliever. That's, that's how I would characterize that. The point being, the law and uh, um, our own self-determination, our own self-determination together with the law is not the biblical prescription for sanctification and assurance. 
That, I think, is Paul's large point in chapter 7. So there's really, uh, I would say, two kinds of slavery that Paul is combating here. Chapter 6 is a slavery to sin, and he talks a lot about that in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is a slavery to the law, and those have a common root. Uh, If you want to read more about that, um, Sinclair Ferguson does an excellent job of demonstrating how those two have a common root and and how the whole Christ, that's the name of his book, uh, the whole gospel as it's mediated through Christ can uh, kill that common root of slavery to both sin and to the law. So the big answer to if it's not uh, slavery to sin, if it's not slavery to the law, how will the sinner live? The justified sinner will live in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And that is chapter 8 of Romans. So this is where we want to zero in on our main text. uh, And we're going to transition to main point number two, uh, which is how can I know that I belong to God? Um, And I see two ways here in this text and another in a third that we'll borrow from uh, in which Paul answers this question. And the first is, letter A, the Spirit testifies. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, So, the question is, how do we understand this? How do we understand this testimony of the Spirit to our spirit that we are God's. And I call this subjective assurance. Now, by subjective assurance, I don't mean it's in any sense uncertain, but that it is uh, subject to each believer. It's going to vary from believer to believer through what circumstances the Lord does this and at what times the Lord does it, uh, and even the extent to which the Lord does it. So this is subjective assurance. So as we answer the question of what this testimony is, what this work of the Spirit is, uh, first, I want to ask, what does a witness do? Any thoughts as to what a witness does? Gives testimony. And his testimony is going to include evidence. Um, And you may have heard this question asked before. If someone tried to convict you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And that's that's a helpful way to think about the testimony that the Spirit bears in this case. Oh, that's your blank. The Spirit gives, or the the witness gives evidence. Uh, So the next question, how does the Holy Spirit function this way in my soul? And we see two ways that he does this uh, here in Romans 8. Actually, the, yeah, two ways in Romans 8 and a third from a related text. Uh, First, in verses 13 and 14, he does this by causing me to hate my sin. Um, and this, this, I know when I first heard this, and I, I you know, credit where credit is due, I think I first heard this in Romans 8 from John Piper, uh, very helpful in helping me to see the uh, sequence of Paul's argument here. Um, so, so the corrective for me was this. If you ask me, you know, do I receive that leading of the Holy Spirit? Do I receive testimony from the Holy Spirit? I might have at one point in my, th- in my life thought, yeah, you know, I, I felt led by God to... Um, a certain school, or I felt led by, by God to, to my wife, or uh, to a job, or to, to buy the house that I bought. 
And, and that's not to say that God doesn't lead us in some sense in those ways, but that's not what this text is saying. This text is talking about the Spirit leading us in a very particular way. And that's what we see here in verses 13 and 14, uh, where Paul's right, Paul writes, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So you see, Paul is connecting the Spirit's leading, God's leading, with being led into battle with your sin. So that's the first way that the Spirit testifies to the heart of the believer, is he causes the believer to hate his sin. And, and this is why I want to be tentative with um, uh, describing the situation in Romans 7 and not just say, you know, the person in Romans 7 is completely unfaithful. Because you see, towards the end of Romans 7, where Paul cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of this death? That is the testimony being born in the heart of someone who, who, who may not be experiencing victory, but at least they're not loving their sin. And, and that doesn't always mean you're saved, but it is an evidence that the Spirit is at least starting to bear witness. And, and for a believer, I think there are many times, and I, I know this is true in my own life, where I feel like I'm living that Romans 7 struggle. You know, I'm, I've, I've maybe even gone through a season where I'm just practically, it's me and my self-determination in the law, and the Lord needs to bring me to that place where I see my insufficiency and his sufficiency, and I cry out, who will rescue me from the body of this death? And, and praise God, consistently, that's, that's an entrance into the realities that we're looking at here in, in Romans 8. So I would turn it to you, and, 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 and I do want this to be a time where you think about your own heart and whether the Spirit is testifying to your own heart of His assurance in this way. And even in that, you know, Romans 7 way where you're not seeing necessarily consistent victory, but you are hating your sin. Um, and I was joking with Dan a little bit just before the uh, Sunday school hour that this is not mortification of assurance. <laughs> You know, I do want, I, I want us to be encouraged uh, to see that as a testimony of the Spirit's gracious work in our hearts is that, uh, that we know we won't be freed from sinning entirely in this life and that when we do see that sin come up and we see that struggle come up, it's not a reason to despair but a reason to hope because the Lord is graciously bearing that testimony that those things that are hateful and, and not lovely. Um, I will borrow this from, from John Piper, and many of you may have heard this before, that uh, the way that the Spirit works in this regard is kind of like if you're in the dark and clutching something you think is precious. And, and he uses the example of a, a, a valuable, I think, onyx brooch. And you're clutching this thing and you're admiring its beauty. You're not seeing it because the lights are off, but you, you know it's wonderful and you're clinging to it. And then all of a sudden the lights come on and you see that it's a cockroach and you can't throw that thing away fast enough. That is kind of how the Spirit works in this. You think that sin is something lovely and something that's worthy of making your refuge, something worthy of trusting and hoping in, something worthy of bringing you joy. And then the Holy Spirit turns the lights on and makes you see that it's disgusting and filthy and not lovely. And so be grateful. You know, even if, even if that's a painful moment, because if, if you've been valuing something and all of a sudden that thing you've been valuing turns out to not be valuable, there can be reason for sadness, and that's, that's legitimate. I think that's why James says turn your, uh, your laughter to tears and your joy to sadness or your joy to mourning uh, is because, you know, oftentimes those things that we've made a refuge 
uh, need to become occasions for grief. Uh, another way um, that it's helpful to uh, evaluate uh, whether this testimony is being born in our hearts is to consider the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Um, and to expand on that, uh, I would commend to you, and I don't know when he did it, but Keith uh, did a message from 2 Corinthians 7, which is where I'm going to point to here, but he did it uh, much more broadly in a Sunday school some time ago. If you don't find it, feel free to email me or text me, and I can try to get that to you uh, if you're interested. Uh, but what we see with Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 is he, he lays out uh, the evidence of the, the Corinthians' godly sorrow. And we see there a helpful contrast uh, between what they were evidencing and, and what would uh, lack those characteristics of a godly sorrow. Uh, and I'm just going to hit some highlights from 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, the Corinthians were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. They actually, you know, threw away the cockroach when they saw it. Um, they, they, they didn't just feel bad that the thing they had been valuing was not valuable. They actually got rid of it. Um, earnestness. What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourself. So all in keeping with repentance, there's a turning away from it and an evidence of something better. Uh, what indignation. What fear. So now they have a right fear what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. So they're in agreement now with, with what the Spirit would say is right and in disagreement now with what they would have previously said was right. In everything, Paul says, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Um, I think we find other examples of the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. One that I come back to uh, again and again is the example of Felix in Acts 24, uh, Paul came and talked to him about sin and self-control and the coming judgment. And you can tell Felix is sort of unsettled by that. And he says, go away for now. I'll call for you uh, when there's a more convenient time. And, and, and so you can just sort of tell he's just unsettled. He does not want everything else Paul would have to offer him in terms of the gospel, but he's unsettled about things. Uh, more clearly, I think, the rich young ruler uh, in the Synoptic Gospels from uh, Mark 10 here um, and the, the rich young ruler said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up, referring to the law. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So there you see a really clear example of worldly sorrow worldly grief. So I think, and I think that, that example in particular uh, can, can help us uh, consider our sorrow. Are we willing to give up the things that God says are not necessary to receive the things that he says are precious? Uh, and of course, our, our application of that needs to get very specific, but generally, and you see, I mean, a lot of times it's wealth. A lot of times it's wealth. Not always. It can be certainly other things. And really, um, my other example uh, uh, applies to what Paul would have said was greatly valuable, which was self-righteousness. And, and we see how thoroughly the Lord dealt with that with Paul uh, when he says towards the end of his life in 1 Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. So he was willing to surrender, like we read in Philippians 3, any conception 
that his lineage, his good works, his astute theology uh, was able to recommend him to God or to deal with his righteousness problem, and he's willing to surrender it all and to receive the thing that God says is valuable. So that for Paul, and uh, hopefully for us, will be the testimony of the Spirit as he causes us to hate our sin. Secondly, the way the Holy Spirit functions in this way as a testifier in my soul is that he creates in me the humble realization of my need for a father and makes me confident that God is my father and will meet all of my needs. Verse 15 of Romans 8, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. And, and remember, we talked about slavery being uh, slavery to sin and or slavery to the law. So I think Paul is condemning both kinds of slavery here. That is not what we've received, a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And again, I would say this is a manifestation of the Spirit in the heart of the one who's crying out, uh, that he is no longer valuing or finding refuge in those things that were his refuge. He's looking to a new refuge. He's been humbled in those things, you know, perhaps like Paul had been hoping in an ability to keep the law or in his own righteousness or not seeing God's existence like a Gentile or thinking that somehow you'd escape the wrath that was evident but now looking to the one who would have had that wrath, but now receives him because the propitiation of Christ was a sufficient wrath-bearing sacrifice for him. So whereas the idea of being led to hate your sin probably doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy, uh, there's more tenderness uh, and warmth here. The word Abba is the Aramaic word uh, similar to our word daddy or papa. Um, it does reflect warmth and tenderness and affection for the one who's crying out. This is not just saying father. It's not just a doctrinal affirmation of adoption or of God's fatherhood. Uh, but the word, the Greek word uh, there is kradzo, crying out. Daddy, I need you is, is kind of the thought here. Um, and that's, that's appropriate, you know, with, with due fear. It's not the fear of slavery to sin or slavery to the law, uh, but a fear like a young child would have for his daddy, but also knowing that the daddy is the only refuge, the only place for that child to get what he needs. Um, and like a child knows that daddy will rescue him, the testimony that the Spirit is bearing in the heart of the believer, and again, this is building on Paul's whole, whole argument that, that righteousness is a free gift available because of the cross, because of seeing that love, you know, we love God because he first loved us, you know that this father will receive you. And, you know, whereas a child might cry out to a father uh, thinking that the father can meet a need that the father is actually incapable of meeting, that is never the case for the child of God. We have his full abundance and full omnipotence knowing he can meet us in every single need. So again, I would turn the question to you. Do you cry out to your father in need? And, and, and as Paul has masterfully done uh, to this point in, in the book of Romans, I know we haven't done it justice, uh, but he has shown how Christ was put on the cross as the solution to the righteousness problem for every single person and every single person who will look to him 
can come, can come and cry out to his Father and ask him to meet his need. And Paul primarily has in mind this righteousness need. We all need this righteousness. So I would urge you, if you haven't received that righteousness as a gift through faith in the blood of Christ, receive it now and cry out to him as your Father and let the Spirit uh, and ask for the Spirit to bear that testimony in your heart. Number three, and this is where we borrow from 1 Corinthians 12, where I think Paul is making a similar point. It, uh, it kind of uh, summarizes, I think, what we've looked at so far, and that is that he causes me to yield to the lordship of Christ if he's bearing this testimony in my heart. Uh, and you might kind of look at this as a commanding uh, officer in a military sense. If the Spirit is leading you to do battle with your sin, you're yielded to his lordship the way that uh, a foot soldier is yielded to the authority of the one sending him into battle. Uh, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 12, Therefore I make it known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So kind of the thought there is if you're the foot soldier, you're not going to... Uh, go into battle at the leading of the Spirit unless he has caused you to say Jesus is Lord. And of course, there you can see it's not just words. Um, you know, I've heard uh, pastors say it's not like you can program a computer to say Jesus is Lord and the computer be saved. This is, this is, this is the idea of a full surrender uh, to the Lordship, and that is the testimony that the Spirit bears in the one uh, who has trusted in Christ for salvation. So again, I would ask, and this is in keeping with what we've already looked at, is the Spirit at work in your heart in such a way that your life says, Jesus is Lord? So the Spirit bears witness to the child of God by making him hate his sin. He teaches him that God is his Father, and he makes him submissive to Christ's Lordship. Um, now, Paul has us looking at this as evidence that we are children, but he doesn't stop there. We read further in verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And so this is where we move from uh, what I referred to as subjective assurance that varies from person to person and time to time in its application to objective assurance. This applies universally to God's children. Of course, there are different levels of reward uh, in terms of our inheritance, but that inheritance functions in this way that Paul is pointing to in this text universally among God's children. So letter A, how the inheritance functions. This inheritance plays a role in keeping the believer assured in the midst of difficulty. It makes suffering seem like nothing. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So my future inheritance that is waiting for me makes my suffering seem like nothing. And really, more significantly, I mean, I, I have my points of suffering, and some of you know here recently I suffered 
um, some significant physical pain, but my suffering looks like nothing compared with the Apostle Paul. Um, and I'll hit highlights from 2 Corinthians 11 uh, as he describes his labors, imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of, of death, uh, five times receiving the 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, a night and day, uh, dangers, dangers from robbers, from rivers, from countrymen, from the Gentiles, from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, labors, hardship, many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So that's what Paul is saying is not worthy to be compared with this inheritance. So the, the inheritance serves to diminish the significance of present suffering. And there's that point. Paul's suffering was something, but the anticipation of his inheritance made it seem like nothing. So, question again for us, do you have an inheritance functioning like this for you? Can you say that your sufferings are nothing compared to what you know you will receive one day? Uh, and that's a question to search your heart, but also to be encouraged uh, if you've seen um, progress in your ability to walk through trials and not be shaken, uh, be encouraged that that is part of the Spirit's testimony to your heart uh, that you're a child. Um, and again, that's not, you know, neat and clean. It's not without its mixture of our own uh, sinful heart's contribution. Uh, but, um, you know, by God's grace, I can look at trials in my life and know with certainty that I wouldn't have borne those um, gladly, joyfully, apart from the anticipation of uh, what I look forward to, you know, that this is just a breath, this is just a moment, and what awaits me makes it look like nothing. So next question, letter B, what is the inheritance? Uh, and we'll look at other texts for this, including Hebrews chapter 1, uh, and uh, notice there in Romans 8 that it says that we are heirs together with Christ. And so what our inheritance is, is his inheritance. And the Hebrews writer says, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So all things are our inheritance. Um, and we could trace, we certainly don't have time for it, but... Uh, the glorious theology of inheritance that goes back at least to the Abrahamic promise, um, which is pointed to in Galatians 3. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And the promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham. We receive that blessing in abundance. Uh, Psalm 2.8 the Father speaking to the Son says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And John applies this in Revelation to all believers. We will reign together with Christ. All of that, and I mean, this is unthinkable. Paul says we will even judge angels. All of that authority and dominion that was supposed to be ours in the garden and Adam surrendered will be restored to us, and that will be our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul hitting a similar note. So, that, so then let no one boast in men, 
for all things belong to you. So there you see, this is common to his theology and whether or not he wrote Hebrews, the Hebrews writer's theology, that all things are the inheritance of Christ, all things are the inheritance of the believer. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So similar to his uh, absolute certainty in Romans 5, the salvation is secure. This reality, the inheritance is equally secure because all things belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. It's all bound up in uh, the very Trinitarian nature of God. And then Romans 4, I mean, so Romans 8, uh, 35 to 37, uh, comprehensively demonstrates uh, in Paul's thinking that everything becomes ours. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Even death, and this is maybe the most striking one to me, death becomes our slave to bring us to Christ. And so that's how Paul is able to say in Romans or in Philippians 1, that he's hard-pressed between the two. He doesn't know whether it's better to depart and to actually experience the death that, that apart from this hope, would be considered uh, a bad thing. But in fact, he knows it brings him to the better thing. And so it's become his slave. It's become his slave to bring him to Christ. And so our inheritance is all things. All things get put under our feet. Death is the last thing to get put under our feet, it says in Revelation. More importantly, the inheritance is God himself. And that is the best part of the inheritance. It says in uh, verse 2 of chapter 5, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 11, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We get God. And that is our great hope, to be restored to that relationship that we lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, the reconciliation that comes through this. Perhaps more pointedly, um, and this particular text has been a great encouragement to me this week as I've thought about the one who will take away every tear and make death be no more. Revelation 21 verse 3, God will dwell with his people and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I think the psalmist uh, in Psalm 73, Asaph, uh, captures this when he says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And so if this isn't your heart's cry, look, look to the one who made the sufficient sacrifice so that your righteousness problem could be dealt with, and receive this testimony that he is bearing in your hearing uh, to the sufficiency of that sacrifice and to his willingness as a father loving a child to meet his need, to meet his foremost need in terms of his righteousness. So further, in terms of the inheritance, Roman numeral three, what is the inheritance? Thirdly, resurrection bodies. And this is back in the context there in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our bodies. And hopefully this is an encouragement to those who are suffering physically. Uh, I think it's an encouragement to all of us because all of us to some extent suffer physically. But again, you know, many of Paul's described sufferings were physical and they seemed like nothing because of the all-inclusive hope of his inheritance, which does include a resurrection body, a body that will have no pain, no suffering, no sorrow. We will be relieved of all of that. It's also interesting to note the necessity of our resurrection bodies. Matthew 13, describing that future reality in verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. You know, we might think often about how we'll need our resurrection bodies in order to behold God. I mean, certainly we can't look at God and survive. What about if we need to have our resurrection bodies and able to be able to look at each other as we're shining like the sun. That is our future reality. And, and to think about, it always makes me think of the, um, that new verse for uh, Come Thou Found. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I will see his lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing his sovereign grace. Come, Lord, no longer tarry, bring your promises to pass. I know your power will keep me until I'm home with you at last. Uh, also, in terms of our resurrection bodies and our yearning for them and what is indicating that need, uh, Paul talks about that perhaps most thoroughly in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, uh, where he writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction. So there that is again, momentary light affliction. And remember, even if not all of us have suffered in the ways that are most intense. Paul has suffered in intense ways. He was able to say these are light and momentary afflictions that are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then in chapter 5, for we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, and I think this is universal, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. These bodies will fall apart. Um, and, and another of my favorite expositions of that is Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, uh, as he describes the realities of aging uh, and, and this reality of a resurrection body uh, addresses the, the pain of that and the difficulty of it. So our final main point, number four, what does it mean to suffer with him? So we've seen an overview of Paul's argument all the way through chapter 8, and we've seen how we know subjectively that we belong to God as the Spirit is bearing witness with our hearts. We've seen the inheritance that it's for the one who belongs to God and how uh, comprehensive it is in its scope. And now one more thing, and this is something that again comes up in our text in Romans 8, uh, verse 17. If we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So another if, uh, if we suffer with him. So what does it mean uh, that we suffer with him? And the first answer to that is the suffering of everyday life in this body of sin. Um, so if anyone would read that text and think, oh, i got to go out and seek suffering, 
that's not Paul's intent there. Um, Jesus says in John 16, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Trouble is certain. Suffering is certain. It's just a matter of when. Um, again, the decay, even if it comes towards the end of your life, uh, the reality of death, um, like we read about in uh, Ecclesiastes 12. Secondly, oh, that's the first point there. No one needs to seek suffering. Secondly, it hurts to have sin put to death. And this of the two is probably the more important in context if we suffer with him. Um, uh, and, and if you're a believer, you've probably had this experience that when, when the Holy Spirit turns that light on and you see the thing that you've been putting some hope, finding some joy in is not hopeful, is not joyful, is not lovely, there's some immediate letdown there. And again, like I said in, in James chapter 4, uh, he calls us to be miserable and mourn and weep to let our laughter be turned into mourning and our joy to gloom. Um, that's suffering. That's painful. Um, and so there are some practical choices we can make to agree with the Lord that those things he's saying are unlovely, are actually unlovely, and make ourselves miserable and mournful and weeping instead of finding an occasion for holding on to those things, making peace with our sin. That's going to bear the opposite testimony in our hearts, and we will struggle with assurance if we're making peace with those things instead of doing the painful and hard thing and turning away from them and cutting ourselves off from them. Some more text there I don't have time to cover. Uh, secondly, our suffering brings us closer to Christ. And that's when it says we suffer with him. We suffer not apart from him. And I'm going to skip that, but there's the blanks. Our troubles in this world can be reduced to two categories, sin and suffering. We want our suffering to be for righteousness' sake and not for sin. And you can come later if you don't get these down. I'll share them with you. And this is the point I was moving towards. To be with him is to not be apart from him. So we get to know him in his sufferings as we suffer and proclaim his faithfulness. As we walk through hard things. And instead of saying, you could have prevented this and going away from him, we run to him in our suffering. Our suffering should bring us to know Christ, like Paul talks about in Philippians 3. And then finally, if you stay with Jesus in your suffering, then your inheritance is close at hand. So I pray that the Lord would minister that as assurance to your heart today. And again, if you're one who has not received that, who has not looked and received the righteousness of God that is by propitiation in his Son, uh, then receive that today. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the occasion of gathering together, and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would, by your spirit, apply it to our hearts and glorify yourself in doing that. We ask in your son's name. Amen.